Hello there, and welcome to Down to Sleep. This is my podcast of softly spoken audiobooks and bedtime stories to help you get a good night's rest. Please do leave a positive review, a thumbs up, or five stars on whatever app you're listening on. If you would prefer to listen on YouTube, then head over to youtube.com slash down to sleep. There is also a Patreon where you can support me and the podcast and get two readings every week. Members of the Patreon hear everything first and get to vote on what books I read next and prioritize. So come and join me at patreon.com slash down to sleep. You can find links to those and my Instagram in the info for this episode. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath. Let's tuck you in and let's get down to sleep. Prologue. The Bite of the Raptor. The tropical rain fell in drenching sheets, hammering the corrugated roof of the clinic building, roaring down the metal gutters, splashing on the ground in a torrent. Berta Carter sighed and stared out of the window. From the clinic she could hardly see the beach or the ocean beyond, cloaked in low fog. This wasn't what she had expected when she had come to the fishing village of Bahia Anasco, on the west coast of Costa Rica, to spend two months as a visiting physician. Bobby Carter had expected sun and relaxation. After two grueling years of residency in emergency medicine at Michael Reese in Chicago, she had been in Bahia Anasco now for three weeks, and it had rained every day. Everything else was fine. She liked the isolation of Bahianasco, the friendliness of its people. Costa Rica had one of the 20 best medical systems in the world, and even in this remote coastal village, the clinic was well-maintained, amply supplied. Her paramedic, Manuel Aragon, was intelligent and well-trained. Bobby was able to practice a level of medicine equal to what she had practiced in Chicago. But the rain, the constant, unending, rain. Across the examining room, Manuel cocked his head. Listen, he said. Believe me, I hear it, Bobby said. No, listen. And then she caught it. Another sound blended with the rain. A deeper rumble that built and emerged until it was clear. The rhythmic thumping of a helicopter she thought, they can't be flying in weather like this. But the sound built steadily, and then the helicopter burst low through the ocean fog and roared overhead, circled and came back. She saw the helicopter swing back over the water, near the fishing boats. It eased sideways to the rickety wooden dock, and back towards the beach. It was looking for a place to land. It was a big-bellied Sikorsky with a blue stripe on the side with the words InGen Construction. That was the name of the construction company building a new resort on one of the offshore islands. The resort was said to be spectacular and very complicated. Many of the local people were employed in the construction, which had been going on for more than two years. Bobby could imagine it. One of those huge American resorts with swimming pools and tennis courts where guests could play and drink their daiquiris without having any contact with the real life of the country. Bobby wondered what was so urgent on that island that the helicopter would fly in this weather. 
Through the windshield, she saw the pilot exhale in relief as the helicopter settled onto the wet sand of the beach. Uniformed men jumped out, flung open a big side door. She heard frantic shouts in Spanish, and Manuel nudged her. They were calling for a doctor. Two black crewmen carried a limp body towards her. A white man barked orders. The white man had a yellow slicker. Red hair appeared around the edges of his Mets baseball cap. Is there a doctor here? He called to her as he ran out. I'm Dr. Carter, she said. The rain fell in heavy drops, pounding her head and shoulders. The red-haired man frowned at her. She was wearing cut-off jeans and a tank top. She had a stethoscope over her shoulder. The bell already rusted from salt air. Ed Regis, we've got a very sick man here, Doctor. Then you better take him to San Jose, she said. San Jose was the capital and 20 minutes by air. We would, but we can't get over the mountains in this weather. You have to treat him here. Bobby trotted alongside the injured man as they carried him to the clinic. He was a kid, no older than 18. Lifting away the blood-soaked shirt, she saw a big slashing rip along his shoulder, and another on the leg. What happened to him? Construction accident, Ed shouted. He fell. One of those ran over him. The kid was pale, shivering, unconscious. Manuel stood by the bright green door of the clinic, waving his arm. The men brought the body through and set it on a table in the center of the room. Manuel started an intravenous line. Bobby swung the light over the kid and bent to examine the wounds. Immediately, she could see that it did not look good. The kid would almost certainly die. A big tearing laceration ran from his shoulder down his torso. At the edge of the wound, the flesh was shredded. At the center, the shoulder was dislocated, pale bones exposed. A second slash cut through the heavy muscles of the thigh deep enough to reveal the pulse of a femoral artery below. Her first impression was that his leg had been ripped open. Tell me again about this injury, she said. I didn't see it, Ed said. They say the backhoe dragged him. Because it almost looks as if he was mauled, Bobby Carter said, probing the wound. Like most emergency room physicians, she could remember in detail patients that she had seen years before. She had seen two maulings. One was a two-year-old child that had been attacked by a Rottweiler. The other was a drunken circus attendant who had an encounter with a Bengal tiger. Both injuries were similar. There was a characteristic look to an animal attack. Mauled, Ed said. No, no, it was a backhoe, believe me. Ed licked his lips as he spoke. He was edgy, acting as if he had done something wrong. Bobby wondered why. If they were using inexperienced local workmen on their resort construction, they must have accidents all the time. Manuel said, Do you want lavage? Yes, she said, after you block him. She bent lower and probed the wound with her fingertips. If an earth mover had rolled over him, dirt would be forced deep into the wound. There wasn't any dirt. Just slippery, slimy foam. The wound had a strange odor. A kind of rotten stench, a smell of death and decay. She'd never smelled anything like it before. How long ago did this happen? An hour. She noticed how tense Ed Regis was again. 
He was one of those eager, nervous types, and he didn't look like a construction foreman or like an executive. He was obviously out of his depth. Bobby Carter turned back to the injuries. Somehow she didn't think she was seeing mechanical trauma. It just didn't look right. No soil contamination of the wound site. No crush injury component. Mechanical trauma of any sort, an auto injury, a factory accident, almost always had a component of crushing. Here there was none. The man's skin was shredded, ripped across his shoulder, and again across the thigh. It really did look like a maul. On the other hand, most of the body was unmarked, which was unusual for an animal attack. She looked again at the head, the arms, the hands. The hands. She felt a chill when she looked at the kid's hands. There were short, slashing cuts on both palms, bruises on the wrists and forearms. She'd worked in Chicago, and she knew what that meant. All right, she said. Wait outside. Why? Ed said, alarmed. He didn't like that. Do you want me to help him or not? She pushed him out of the door and closed it on his face. She didn't know what was going on, but she didn't like it. Manuel hesitated. I continue to wash? Yes, she said. She reached for her little Olympus point-and-shoot, took several snapshots of the injury, shifting her light for a better view. It really did look like bites. The kid groaned and she put her camera aside and bent towards him. His lips moved, his tongue thick. Raptor, he said. Osa Raptor. At those words, Manuel froze and stepped back in horror. What does it mean? Bobby said. Manuel shook his head. I do not know, Doctor. Losarapta no es español. No? It sounded to her like Spanish. Then please continue to wash him. No, Doctor. He wrinkled his nose. Bad smell. He crossed himself. Bobby looked again at the slippery foam streaked across the wound. She touched it, rubbing it between her fingers. It seemed almost like saliva. The injured boy's lips moved. Raptor, he whispered. In a tone of horror, Manuel said. It bit him. What bit him? Raptor. What's a raptor? It means hoopia. Bobby frowned. The Costa Ricans were not especially superstitious, but she had heard the hoopia mentioned in the village before. They were said to be night ghosts, faceless vampires who kidnapped small children. According to the belief, the Hoopia had once lived in the mountains of Costa Rica, but now they inhabited the islands offshore. Manuel was backing away, murmuring and crossing himself. It is not normal, the smell, he said. It is the Hoopia. Bobby was about to order him back to work when the injured youth opened his eyes and sat straight up on the table. Manuel shrieked in terror. The injured boy moaned and twisted his head looking left and right with wide staring eyes, and explosively vomited blood. He went immediately into convulsions, his body vibrating. Bobby grabbed for him, but he shuddered off the table onto the concrete floor. There was blood everywhere. Ed opened the door, saying, What the hell's happening? When he saw the blood, he turned away his hand to his mouth. Bobby was grabbing for a stick to put in the boy's clenched jaws, but even as she did it, she knew it was hopeless. With a final jerk, he relaxed and lay still. She bent to perform mouth to mouth, but Manuel grabbed her shoulder fiercely, pulling her back. No, he said. The hoopia will cross over. Manuel, for God's sake. No. 
He stared at her fiercely. You do not understand these things. Bobby looked at the body on the ground and realized that it didn't matter. There was no possibility of resuscitating him. Manuel called for the men who came back into the room and took the body away. Ed appeared, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand and muttering, I'm sure you did all you could. She watched as the men took the body away, back to the helicopter. It lifted thunderously up into the sky. It is better, Manuel said. Bobby was thinking about the boy's hands. They had been covered with cuts and bruises in the characteristic pattern of defense wounds. She was quite sure that he had not died in a construction accident. He had been attacked. He had held up his hands against his attacker. Where is this island they've come from, she asked. The ocean? Perhaps a hundred, hundred and twenty miles offshore? Pretty far for a resort, she said. Manuel watched the helicopter. I hope they never come back. Well, she thought at least she had the pictures. But when she turned back to the table, she saw that her camera was gone. The rain finally stopped later that night. Alone in the bedroom behind the clinic, Bobby thumbed through her tattered paperback Spanish dictionary. The boy had said raptor, and despite Manuel's protest, she suspected it was a Spanish word. Sure enough, she found it in her dictionary. It meant ravisher or abductor. It gave her pause. The sense of the word was suspiciously close to the meaning of hupia. Of course, she did not believe in the superstition, and no ghost had cut those hands. What had the boy been trying to tell her? From the next room, she heard groans. One of the village women was in the first stage of labor, and Eleanor Morales, local midwife, was attending to her. Bobby went into the clinic room and gestured to Elena to step outside for a moment. Elena? See, doctor? Do you know what is a raptor? Elena was grey-haired, sixty, a strong woman with a practical no-nonsense air. In the night beneath the stars, she frowned and said, Raptor? Yes, you know this word? See, si, Elena nodded. It means a person who comes in the night and takes away a child. A kidnapper? Yes, a hoopia. Her whole manner changed. Do not say this word, doctor. Why not? Do not speak of Hupia now. Elena said this firmly, nodding her head towards the groans of the laboring woman. It is not wise to say this word now. But does a raptor bite and cut his victims? Bite and cut? Elena was puzzled. No, doctor, nothing like this. A raptor is a man who takes a new baby. She seemed irritated by the conversation, impatient to end it. Elena started back towards the clinic. I will call to you when she is ready, Doctor. I think one hour more, perhaps two. Bobby looked at the stars and listened to the peaceful lapping of the surf at the shore. In the darkness, she saw the shadows of the fishing boats anchored offshore. The whole scene was quiet, so normal. She felt foolish to be talking of vampires and kidnapped babies. Bobby went back to her room, remembering again that Manuel had insisted it was not a Spanish word. Out of curiosity, she looked in the little English dictionary. And to her surprise, she found the word there too. 
raptor, bird of prey. Almost paradise. Mike Bowman whistled cheerfully as he drove the Land Rover through the Cabo Blanco Biological Reserve on the west coast of Costa Rica. It was a beautiful morning in July. The road before him was spectacular, hugging the edge of a cliff overlooking the jungle, the Blue Pacific. According to the guidebooks, Cabo Blanco was unspoiled wilderness, almost a paradise. Seeing it now made Bowman feel as if the vacation was back on track. Bowman was a 36-year-old real estate developer from Dallas, and he had come to Costa Rica with his wife and daughter for a two-week holiday. The trip had actually been his wife's idea. For weeks, Ellen had filled his ear about the wonderful national parks of Costa Rica, how good it would be for Tina to see them. Then, when they arrived, it turned out that Ellen had an appointment to see a plastic surgeon in San Jose. That was the first Mike Bowman had heard about this excellent and inexpensive plastic surgery available in Costa Rica and all of the luxurious private clinics in San Jose. Of course, they had had a huge fight. Mike felt that she had lied to him, and she had. He put his foot down about this plastic surgery business. Anyway, it was ridiculous. Ellen was only 30 and she was a beautiful woman. Hell, she'd been homecoming queen her senior year at Rice. That was not even ten years ago. But Ellen tended to be insecure and she worried. It seemed as if in recent years she had mostly worried about losing her looks. That and everything else. The Land Rover bounced in a pothole, splashing mud. Seated beside him, Ellen said, Mike, are you sure this is the right road? We haven't seen any other people for hours. There was another car fifteen minutes ago, he reminded her. Remember? The blue one? Going the other way? Darling, you wanted a deserted beach, he said, and that's what you're gonna get. Ellen shook her head doubtfully. I hope you're right. Yeah, Dad, I hope you're right, said Christina from the back seat. She was eight years old. Trust me, I'm right. He drove in silence for a moment. It's beautiful, isn't it? Look at that view, it's beautiful. It's okay, Tina said. Ellen got out a compact and looked at herself in the mirror, pressing under her eyes. She sighed and put the compact away. The road began to descend. Mike Bowman concentrated on driving. Suddenly, a small black shape flashed across the road, and Tina shrieked, Look! Look! Then it was gone, into the jungle. What was it? Ellen asked. A monkey? Maybe a squirrel monkey, Bowman said. Can I count it? Tina said, taking her pencil out. She was keeping a list of all the animals that she had seen on her trip as a project for school. I don't know, Mike said doubtfully. Tina consulted the pictures in the guidebook. I don't think it was a squirrel monkey, she said. I think it was just another howler. They had seen several howler monkeys already on the trip. Hey, she said more brightly. According to this book, the beaches of Cabo Blanco are frequented by a variety of wildlife, including howler and white-faced monkeys, three-toed sloths. You think we'll see a three-toed sloth, Dad? I bet we do. Really? Just look in the mirror. Very funny, Dad. The road sloped downwards through the jungle towards the ocean. Mike Bowman felt like a hero when they finally reached the beach. A two-mile crescent of white sand 
utterly deserted. He parked the Land Rover in the shade of the palm trees that fringed the beach and got out the box lunches. Ellen changed into her bathing suit, saying, Honestly, I don't know how I'm going to get this weight off. You look great, hon. Actually, he felt like she was too thin, but he had learned not to mention that. Tina was already running down the beach. Don't forget your sunscreen, Ellen called. Later, Tina shouted over her shoulder. I'm going to see if there's a sloth. Ellen Bowman looked around the beach and the trees. You think she's alright? Honey, there's nobody here for miles. What about snakes? Oh, for God's sake, Mike said. There's no snakes on a beach. There might be. Honey, he said firmly. Snakes are cold-blooded. They're reptiles. They can't control their body temperature. It's 90 degrees on that sand. If a snake came out, it'd be cooked. Believe me, there's no snakes on the beach. He watched his daughter scampering down the beach, a dark spot on white sand. Let her go. Let her have a good time. He put his arm around his wife's waist. Tina ran until she was exhausted. She threw herself down on the sand and gleefully rolled to the water's edge. The ocean was warm. There was hardly any surf at all. She sat for a while, catching her breath, and then she looked back towards her parents in the car to see how far she had come. Her mother waved, beckoning her to return. Tina waved back cheerfully, pretending that she didn't understand. Tina didn't want to put sunscreen on, and she didn't want to go back and hear her mother talk about losing weight. She wanted to stay right here, maybe see a sloth. Tina had seen a sloth two days earlier at the zoo in San Jose. It looked like a Muppets character, and it seemed harmless. In any case, it couldn't move fast, and she could easily outrun it. Now her mother was calling to her, and Tina decided to move out of the sun back from the water to the shade of the palm trees. In this part of the beach, the palm trees overhung a gnarled tangle of mangrove roots which blocked any attempt to penetrate inland. Tina sat in the sand and kicked the dried mangrove leaves. She noticed many bird tracks in the sand. Costa Rica was famous for its birds. The guidebook said there were three times as many birds in Costa Rica as in all of America and Canada. In the sand, some of the three-toed bird tracks were small, so faint they could hardly be seen. Other tracks were large and cut deeper in the sand. Tina was looking idly at the tracks when she heard chirping followed by a rustling in the mangrove thicket. Did sloths make a chirping sound? Tina didn't think so, but she wasn't sure. The chirping was probably some ocean bird. She waited quietly, not moving, hearing the rustling again. Finally, she saw the source of the sounds. A few yards away, a lizard emerged from the mangrove roots and peered at her. Tina held her breath. A new animal for her list. The lizard stood on its hind legs, balancing on its thick tail and stared at her. Standing like that, it was almost a foot tall. Dark green with brown stripes along its back. Its tiny front legs ended in little lizard fingers that wiggled in the air. The lizard cocked its head and looked at her. Tina thought it was cute, sort of like a big salamander. She raised her hand and wiggled her fingers back. 
the lizard wasn't frightened. It came towards her walking upright on its hind legs. It was hardly bigger than a chicken, and like a chicken it bobbed its head as it walked. Tina thought it would make a wonderful pet. She noticed that the lizard left three toed tracks that looked exactly like bird tracks. The lizard came closer to Tina. She kept her body still, not wanting to frighten the little animal. She was amazed it would come so close, but she remembered this was a national park. All the animals in the park would know they were protected. This lizard was probably tame. Maybe it even expected her to give it some food. Unfortunately, she didn't have any. Slowly, Tina extended her hand, palm open, to show that she didn't have any food. The lizard paused, cocked his head, and chirped. Sorry, Tina said. I just don't have anything. And then, without warning, the lizard jumped up onto her outstretched hand. Tina could feel its little toes pinching the skin of her palm, and she felt the surprising weight of the animal body pressing her arm down. And then, the lizard scrambled up her arm towards her face. I just wish I could see her, Ellen Bowman said, squinting in the sunlight. That's all, just see her. I'm sure she's fine, Mike said, picking through the box lunch packed by the hotel. An unappetizing grilled chicken and some kind of meat-filled pastry. Not that Ellen would eat any of it. You don't think she'd leave the beach, Ellen said. No, hon, I don't. I feel so isolated here, Ellen said. I thought that's what you wanted, Mike Bowman said. I did. Then what's the problem? I just wish I could see her, is all, Ellen said. Then, from down the beach, carried by the wind, they heard their daughter's voice, and she was screaming. I think she's quite comfortable now, Dr. Cruz said, lowering the plastic flap of the oxygen tent around Tina as she slept. Mike Bowman sat beside the bed close to his daughter. Mike thought Dr. Cruz was probably pretty capable. He spoke excellent English, the result of training at medical centers in London and Baltimore. Dr. Cruz radiated competence, and the Clinicia Santa Maria, the modern hospital in Puntarinas, was spotless and efficient. But even so, Mike Bowman felt nervous. There was no getting around the fact that his only daughter was desperately ill, and they were far from home. When Mike had first reached Tina, she was screaming hysterically. Her whole left arm was bloody and covered with a profusion of small bites, each the size of a thumbprint, flecks of sticky foam on her arm like foamy saliva. He carried her back down the beach and almost immediately her arm began to redden and swell. Mike would not soon forget the frantic drive back to civilization, the four-wheel drive Land Rover slipping and sliding up muddy tracks into the hills, while his daughter screamed in fear and pain. Her arm grew more bloated and red. Long before they reached the park boundaries, the swelling spread to her neck and Tina began to have trouble breathing. She'll be alright now, Ellen said, staring through the plastic oxygen tent. I believe so, Dr. Cruz said. I've given her another dose of steroids, and her breathing is much easier. You can see the edema in her arm is greatly reduced. Mike Bowman said, about those bites. We have no identification yet. I myself haven't seen bites like that before, but you'll notice they're disappearing. It's already quite difficult to make them out. I fortunately have taken photographs for reference, and 
I've washed her arm to collect samples of the sticky saliva, one for analysis here and a second to send to the labs in San Jose. The third we will keep frozen in case it is needed. Do you have the picture that she made? Yes, Mike Bowman said. He handed the doctor the sketch that Tina had drawn in response to questions from admitting officials. This is the animal that bit her, Dr. Cruz said, looking at the picture. Yes, Mike Bowman said. She said it was a green lizard the size of a chicken or a crow. I don't know of such a lizard, the doctor said. She's drawn it, standing on its hind legs. That's right. She said it walked on its hind legs, said Mike Bowman. Dr. Cruz frowned and stared at the picture a while longer. I'm not an expert. I've asked for Dr. Gutierrez to visit us here. He's a senior researcher at the Reserva Biologica de Carana, which is across the bay. Perhaps he can identify the animal for us. Isn't there someone from Cabo Blanco? That's where she was bitten. Unfortunately not. Cabo Blanco has no permanent staff, and no researcher has worked there for some time. You were probably the first people to walk on that beach in several months. I'm sure you'll find Dr. Gutierrez to be knowledgeable. Dr. Gutierrez turned out to be a bearded man, wearing khaki shorts and a shirt. The surprise was that he was American. He was introduced to the Bowmans, saying in a soft southern accent, Mr. and Mrs. Bowman, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. And explaining that he was a field biologist from Yale, who had worked in Costa Rica for the last five years. Marty Gutierrez examined Tina thoroughly, lifting her arm gently, peering closely at each of the bites with a penlight, measuring them with a small pocket ruler. After a while, Gutierrez stepped away, nodding to himself as if he had understood something. He then inspected the Polaroids and asked several questions about the saliva, which Cruz told him was still being tested in the lab. Finally, he turned to Mike Bowman and his wife, waiting tensely. I think Tina's going to be fine. I just want to be clear about a few details, he said, making notes in a precise hand. Your daughter says she was bitten by a green lizard, approximately one foot high, which walked upright onto the beach from the mangrove swamp. That's right, yes. And the lizards made some kind of vocalization. Tina said it chirped or squeaked. Like a mouse, would you say? Yes. Well then, I know this lizard. He explained that of the 6,000 species of lizards in the world, no more than a dozen walked upright. Of those species, only four were found in Latin America. And judging by the coloration, the lizard could be only one of the four. I'm sure it was a striped basilisk lizard, found here in Costa Rica and in Honduras, standing on their hind legs there, sometimes as tall as a foot. Are they poisonous? No, Mrs. Bowman, not at all. Gutierrez explained that the swelling in Tina's arm was an allergic reaction. According to the literature, 14% of people are strongly allergic to reptiles, he said. Your daughter seems to be one of them. She was screaming. She said it was so painful. Probably it was. Reptile saliva contains serotonin, which causes tremendous pain. He turned to Cruz. Her blood pressure came down with antihistamines. Yes, Cruz said. Promptly. Serotonin. No question. Still, Ellen Bowman remained uneasy. 
Why would a lizard bite her in the first place? Lizard bites are very common, Gutierrez said. Animal handlers in zoos get bitten all the time. Just the other day I heard a lizard had bitten an infant in her crib in Amaloya, 60 miles from where you were. Bites do occur, but I'm not sure why your daughter had so many bites. What was she doing at the time? Nothing. She was sitting pretty still. She didn't want to frighten it. Sitting pretty still, Gutierrez said, frowning. He shook his head. Well, I don't think we can say exactly what happened. Wild animals are unpredictable. What about the foamy saliva on her arm, Ellen said. I keep thinking about rabies. No, no. A reptile can't carry rabies, Mrs. Bowman. Your daughter has suffered an allergic reaction to the bite of a basilisk lizard. Nothing more serious. Mike Bowman showed Gutierrez the picture that Tina had drawn. Gutierrez nodded. I would accept that this is a picture of a basilisk lizard. A few details are wrong, of course. The neck is too long. She's drawn the hind legs with three toes instead of five. The tail's too thick and raised too high. But otherwise, this is a perfectly serviceable lizard of the kind that we're talking about. But Tina said the neck was long specifically, Ellen said. She said there were three toes on the foot. Tina's pretty observant, Mike said. I'm sure she is, Gutierrez said, smiling. But I still think your daughter was just bitten by a common basilisk. She had a severe herpetological reaction. Normal time course with medication is 12 hours. She should be fine in the morning. In the modern laboratory in the basement of the Clinicia Santa Maria, word was received that Dr. Gutierrez had identified the animal that had bitten the American child. A harmless basilisk lizard. Immediately, the analysis of the saliva was halted, even though a preliminary fractionation showed several extremely high molecular weight proteins of unknown biological activity. But the night technician was busy, and he placed the saliva samples on the holding shelf of the refrigerator. The next morning, the day clerk checked the holding shelf against the names of discharged patients. Seeing Bowman, Christina L. was scheduled for discharge that morning, the clerk threw out the saliva samples. At the last moment, he noticed that one sample had a red tag, which meant that it was to be forwarded to the university lab in San Jose. He retrieved the test tube from the wastebasket and sent it on its way. Go on, say thank you to Dr. Cruz, Ellen Bowman said, and pushed Tina forward. Thank you, Dr. Cruz, Tina said. I feel much better now. She reached up and shook the doctor's hand. She said, You have a different shirt. For a moment, Dr. Cruz looked perplexed and smiled. That's right, Tina. When I work all night at the hospital, in the morning I change my shirt. But not your tie? No, just my shirt. Ellen said, Mike told you she's observant. She certainly is. Dr. Cruz smiled and shook the little girl's hand gravely. Enjoy the rest of your holiday in Costa Rica, Tina. I will. The Bowman family had started to leave when Dr. Cruz said, Tina, do you remember the lizard that bit you? Uh-huh. Do you remember its feet? Mm-hmm. Did it have any toes? Yes. How many toes did it have? Three, she said. How do you know that? Because I looked, she said. 
Anyway, all the birds on the beach made marks in the sand with three toes like this. She held up her hand, middle three fingers spread wide. The lizard made those kinds of marks in the sand too. The lizard made marks like a bird? Uh-huh, Tina said. He walked like a bird too. He jerked his head like this up and down. She took a few steps, bobbing her head. After the Bowmans had departed, Dr. Cruz decided to report this conversation to Gutierrez at the biological station. I must admit, the girl's story's puzzling, Gutierrez said. I've been doing some checking myself. I'm no longer certain she was bitten by a basilisk. Not certain at all. Then what could it be? Well, Gutierrez said, let's not speculate prematurely. By the way, have you heard of any other lizard bites at the hospital? No? Why? Let me know, my friend. If you do. The beach. Marty Gutierrez sat on the beach and watched the afternoon sun fall lower in the sky until it sparkled harshly on the water of the bay and its rays reached beneath the palm trees to where he sat among the mangroves on the beach of Capo Blanco. As best he could determine, he was sitting near the spot where the American girl had been two days before. Although it was true enough, as he had told the Bowmans, lizard bites were common. Gutierrez had never heard of a basilisk biting anyone. He had certainly never heard of anyone being hospitalized for a lizard bite. Then, too, the bite radius on Tina's arm appeared slightly too large for a basilisk. When he got back to the Carrara station, he had checked the small research library there, but found no reference to basilisk lizard bites. Next, he checked International Bioscience Services, a computer database in America, but he found no references to basilisk bites or hospitalization for lizard bites. He then called the medical officer in Amaloya, who confirmed that a nine-day-old infant sleeping in its crib had been bitten on the foot by an animal. The grandmother, the only person to see it, called it a lizard. Subsequently, the foot had become swollen and the infant had nearly died. The grandmother described the lizard as green with brown stripes. It had bitten the child several times before the woman frightened it away. Strange, Gutierrez said. No, like all the others, the medical officer replied, adding that he had heard of other biting incidents. A child in Vasquez, the next village up the coast, had been bitten while sleeping. Another in Puerto Sotero, all these incidents had occurred in the last two months. All had involved sleeping children and infants. Such a new and distinctive pattern led Gutierrez to suspect the presence of a previously unknown species of lizard. This was particularly likely to happen in Costa Rica. Only 75 miles wide at Snarrowis Point, the country was smaller than the state of Maine. Yet, within its limited space, Costa Rica had a remarkable diversity of biological habitats. Sea coasts on both the Atlantic and the Pacific. Four separate mountain ranges, including 12,000 foot peaks and active volcanoes. Rainforests, cloud forests, temperate zones, swampy marshes, arid deserts. Such ecological diversity sustained an astonishing diversity of plant and animal life. Costa Rica had three times as many species of birds as all of North America. 
more than a thousand species of orchids, more than five thousand species of insects. New species were being discovered all the time at a pace that had increased in recent years. For a sad reason, Costa Rica was becoming deforested, and as jungle species lost their habitats, they moved to other areas and sometimes changed behavior as well. So a new species was perfectly possible. But along with the excitement of a new species was the worrisome possibility of new diseases. Lizards carried viral diseases, including several that could be transmitted to man. The most serious was CSE, which caused a form of sleeping sickness in human beings and horses. Gutierrez felt it was important to find this new lizard, if only to test it for disease. Sitting on the beach, he watched the sun drop lower and sighed. Perhaps Tina Bowman had seen a new animal, and perhaps not. Certainly Gutierrez had not. Earlier that morning, he had taken the air pistol, loaded the clip with ligamine darts, and set out for the beach with high hopes. But the day was wasted. Soon he would have to begin the drive back up the hill from the beach. He did not want to drive that road in darkness. Gutierrez got to his feet and started back up the beach. Farther along, he saw the dark shape of a howler monkey ambling along the edge of the mangrove swamp. Gutierrez moved away, stepping out toward the water. If there was one howler, there would probably be others in the trees overhead, and howlers tended to urinate on intruders. But this particular howler monkey seemed to be alone, walking slowly, pausing frequently to sit on its haunches. The monkey had something in its mouth. As Gutierrez came closer, he saw it was eating a lizard. The tail and the hind legs drooped from the monkey's jaws. Even from a distance, Gutierrez could see the brown stripes against the green. Gutierrez dropped to the ground and aimed the pistol. The howler monkey, accustomed to living in a protected reserve, stared curiously. He did not run away, even when the first dart whined harmlessly past him. When the second dart struck deep in the thigh, the howler shrieked in anger and surprise dropping the remains of its meal as it fled into the jungle. Gutierrez got to his feet and walked forward. He wasn't worried about the monkey. The tranquilizer dose was too small to give it anything but a few minutes of dizziness. Already he was thinking of what to do with his new find. Gutierrez himself would write the preliminary report, but the remains would have to be sent back to the United States for a final positive identification. To whom should he send it? The acknowledged expert was Edward H. Simpson, emeritus professor of zoology at Columbia University in New York. An elegant older man with swept back white hair, Simpson was the world's leading authority on lizard taxonomy. Probably, Marty thought, he would send his lizard to Dr. Simpson. New York. Dr. Richard Stone head of the Tropical Diseases Laboratory of Columbia University Medical, often remarked that the name conjured up a grander place than it actually was. In the early 20th century, when the laboratory occupied the entire fourth floor of the Biomedical Research Building, crews of technicians worked to eliminate the scourges of yellow fever, malaria, and cholera. But medical successes and 
research laboratories in Nairobi and Sao Paulo had left the TDL a much less important place than it once was. Now a fraction of its former size, it employed only two full-time technicians. And they were primarily concerned with diagnosing illnesses of New Yorkers who had traveled abroad. The lab's comfortable routine was unprepared for what it received that morning. Oh, very nice, the technician in the tropical disease laboratory said as she read the customs label. Partially masticated fragment of unidentified Costa Rican lizard. She wrinkled her nose. This one's all yours, Dr. Stone. Richard Stone crossed the lab to inspect the new arrival. Is this the material from Ed Simpson's lab? Yes, she said, but I don't know why they'd send a lizard to us. His secretary called, Stone said. Simpson's on a field trip in Borneo for the summer, and because there's a question of communicable disease with this lizard, she asked our lab to take a look. Let's see what we've got. The white plastic cylinder was the size of a half-gallon milk container. It had locking metal latches and a screw top. It was labeled International Biological Specimen Container, plastered with stickers and warnings in four languages. The warnings were intended to keep the cylinder from being opened by suspicious customs officials. Apparently, the warnings had worked. Richard Stone swung the big light over and he could see the seals were still intact. Stone turned on the air handlers and pulled on plastic gloves and a face mask. After all, the lab had recently identified specimens contaminated with Venezuelan equine fever, Japanese B. encephalitis, forest virus, Langat virus, and then he unscrewed the top. There was the hiss of escaping gas, and white smoke boiled out. The cylinder turned frosty cold. Inside, he found a plastic Ziploc sandwich bag containing something green. Stone spread a surgical drape on the table and shook the contents out of the bag. A piece of frozen flesh struck the table with a dull thud. Huh, the technician said. Looks eaten. Yes, it does, said Stone. What do they want with us? The technician consulted the enclosed documents. Lizard is biting local children. They have a question about identification of species and a concern about diseases transmitted from the bite. She produces a child's picture of a lizard, signed Tina at the top. One of the kids drew a picture of the lizard. Stone glanced at the picture. Obviously we can't verify the species, but we can check diseases easily enough. If we can get any blood out of this fragment, what are they calling this animal? Bacillus amaratus with a three-toed genetic anomaly, she said. Okay, Stone said. Let's get started. While you're waiting for it to thaw, do an x-ray and take Polaroids for the record. Once we have blood, start running antibody sets until we get some matches. Let me know if there's a problem. Before lunchtime, the lab had its answer. The lizard blood showed no significant reactivity to any viral or bacterial antigen. They had run toxicity profiles as well and had found only one positive match. The blood was mildly reactive to the venom of the Indian King Cobra. But such cross-reactivity was common among reptile species, and Dr. Stone did not think it noteworthy to include it in the facts that his technician sent to Dr. Martin Gutierrez. There was never any question about identifying the lizard. 
that would await the return of Dr. Simpson, and he was not due back for several weeks. His secretary asked if the TDL would please store the fragment in the meantime. Dr. Stone put it back in the Ziploc bag and stuck it in the freezer. Martin Gutierrez read the facts from Columbia Medical. It was brief. Subject, Bacillus emeratus with genetic anomaly. Materials, posterior segment, question mark, partially eaten animal, procedures performed, X-ray, microscopic, immunological RTX for viral, parasitic, and bacterial disease. Findings. No histologic or immunologic evidence for any communicable disease in man. Gutierrez made two assumptions based on this moment. First, his identification of the lizard as a basilisk had been confirmed by scientists at Columbia. Second, the absence of communicable disease meant the recent episode of sporadic lizard bites implied no serious health hazard. On the contrary, he felt his original views were correct. A lizard species had been driven from the forest into a new habitat and was coming into contact with village people. Gutierrez was certain that in a few more weeks the lizards would settle down and the biting episodes would end. The tropical rain fell in great drenching sheets hammering the corrugated roof of the clinic. It was nearly midnight. Power had been lost in the storm, and the midwife Elena Morales was working by flashlight when she heard a squeaking, chirping sound. Thinking it was a rat, she quickly put a compress on the forehead of the mother and went into the next room to check on the newborn baby. As her hand touched the doorknob, she heard chirping again, and she relaxed. Evidently, it was just a bird, flying in the window to get out of the rain. Costa Ricans said that when a bird came to visit a newborn child, it brought good luck. Elena opened the door. The infant lay in a wicker bassinet, swaddled in a light blanket, only its face exposed. Around the rim of the bassinet, three dark green lizards crouched like gargoyles. When they saw Elena, they cocked their heads and stared curiously at her, but did not flee. In the light of her flashlight, Elena saw the blood dripping from their snouts. Softly chirping, one lizard bent down with a quick shake of its head and tore a ragged chunk of flesh from the baby. Elena rushed forward screaming, and the lizards fled into the darkness. Long before she reached the bassinet, she could see what had happened to the infant's face. She knew the child was dead. The lizards scattered into the rainy night, chirping, squealing, leaving behind only bloody three-toed tracks, like birds. Later, when she was calmer, Elena Morales decided not to report the lizard attack. Despite the horror that she had seen, she began to worry that she might be criticized for leaving a baby unguarded. She told the mother the baby had asphyxiated and reported the death on the forms that she sent to San Jose as SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, a syndrome of unexplained death among very young children. It was unremarkable, and her report went unchallenged. The university in San Jose that analyzed the saliva sample from Tina Bowman's arm made several remarkable discoveries. There was, as expected, a great deal of serotonin, but among the salivary proteins was a real monster. 
with a molecular mass of 1,980,000, one of the largest proteins known. Biological activity was still under study, but it seemed to be a neurotoxic poison related to cobra venom, although more primitive in its structure. The lab also detected trace quantities of an enzyme that was a marker for genetic engineering and not found in wild animals. Technicians assumed it was a lab contaminant and did not report it when they called Dr. Cruz. The lizard fragment rested in the freezer at Columbia University, awaiting the return of Dr. Simpson, who was not expected for at least a month. So things might have remained, had not a technician named Alice Lemon walked into the tropical disease lab, seen Tina Berman's picture and said, Oh, whose kid drew the dinosaur? Richard Stone turned slowly towards her. The dinosaur? Isn't that what it is? My kid draws them all the time. This is a lizard, Stone said, from Costa Rica. Some girl down there drew a picture of it. No, Alice said. Look, it's very clear. Big head, long neck, stands on hind legs. Thick tail. It's a dinosaur. It can't be. It was only a foot tall. So? There were little dinosaurs back then. Believe me, I know, I have two boys, I'm an expert. The smallest dinosaurs were under a foot. Teeny Saurus or something. I don't know. Those names are impossible. You'll never learn those names if you're over the age of ten. You don't understand, Richard Stone said. This is a picture of a contemporary animal. They sent us a fragment of the animal. It's in the freezer now. Stone went and got it and shook it out of the baggie. Alice Levin looked at the frozen piece of leg and tail and shrugged. She didn't touch it. I don't know, she said, but it looks like a dinosaur to me. Stone shook his head. Impossible. Why, Alice said. It could be a leftover, a remnant, or whatever they call them. Stone continued to shake his head. Alice was uninformed. She was just a technician who worked in the bacteriology lab down the hall. She had an active imagination. Stone remembered the time when she thought she was being followed by one of the surgical orderlies. You know, Alice said, if this is a dinosaur, Richard, it could be a big deal. It's not a dinosaur. Has anybody checked it? No. Well, take it to the Museum of Natural History or something. You really should. I'd be embarrassed. Do you want me to do it for you, she said. No, I don't. You're not going to do anything? Nothing at all. He put the baggie back in the freezer and slammed the door. It's not a dinosaur. It's a lizard. And whatever it is, it can wait until Dr. Simpson gets back from Borneo. That's final, Alice. This lizard's not going anywhere. Alan Grant crouched down, his nose inches from the ground. The temperature was over a hundred degrees. His knees ached, despite the rug layer pads that he wore. His lungs burned from the harsh alkaline dust. Sweat dripped off his forehead onto the ground. But Grant was oblivious to his discomfort. His entire attention was focused on the six-inch square of earth in front of him. Working patiently with a dental pick and an artist's camel brush, he exposed the tiny L-shaped fragment of jawbone. It was only an inch long and no thicker than his little finger. The teeth were a row of small points and had the characteristic medial angling Bits of bone flaked away as he dug, 
Grant paused for a moment to paint the bone with rubber cement before continuing to expose it. There was no question. This was the jawbone from an infant carnivorous dinosaur. Its owner had died 79 million years ago, at the age of two months. With any luck, Grant might find the rest of the skeleton as well. And if so, it would be the first complete skeleton of a baby carnivore. Hey, Alan! Alan Grant looked up, blinking in the sunlight. He pulled down his sunglasses and wiped his forehead with the back of his arm. He was crouched on an eroded hillside in the badlands outside Snakewater, Montana. Beneath the great blue bowl of sky, blunted hills exposed outcroppings of crumbling limestone, stretching for miles in every direction. There was not a tree or a bush, nothing but barren rock, hot sun, and whining wind. Visitors found the badlands depressingly bleak. But when Grant looked at this landscape, he saw something else entirely. This barren land was what remained of another, very different world, which had vanished 80 million years ago. In his mind's eye, Grant saw himself back in the warm, swampy bayou that formed the shoreline of a great inland sea. This inland sea was a thousand miles wide, extending all the way from the newly upthrust rocky mountains to the sharp, craggy peaks of the Appalachians. All of the American West was underwater. At that time, there were thin clouds in the sky overhead, darkened by the smoke of nearby volcanoes. The atmosphere was denser, richer in carbon dioxide. Plants grew rapidly along the shoreline. There were no fish in these waters, but there were clams and snails. Pterosaurs swooped down to scoop algae from the surface. A few carnivorous dinosaurs prowled the swampy shores of the lake, moving among the palm trees. Offshore was a small island about two acres in size, ringed with dense vegetation. This island formed a protected sanctuary where herds of herbivorous duck-billed dinosaurs laid their eggs in communal nests and raised their squeaking young. Over the millions of years that followed, the pale green alkaline lake grew shallower and finally vanished. The exposed land buckled and cracked under the heat. The offshore island with its dinosaur eggs became the eroded hillside in northern Montana which Alan Grant was now excavating. Hey, Alan! He stood. A barrel-chested, bearded man of forty, he heard the chugging of the portable generator and the distant clatter of a jackhammer cutting into dense rock on the next hill. He saw the kids working around the jackhammer, moving away big pieces of rock and checking them for fossils. At the foot of the hill, he saw the six teepees of his camp, the flapping mess tent, and the trailer that served as a field laboratory. And he saw Ellie waving to him from the shadow of the field laboratory. Visitor, she called, and pointed to the east. Grant saw the cloud of dust, and the blue Ford sedan bouncing over the rutted road towards them. He glanced at his watch, right on time. On the other hill, the kids looked up with interest. They didn't get many visitors in Snake Water, and 
There had been a lot of speculation about what a lawyer from the Environmental Protection Agency would want to see Alan Grant about. But Grant knew that paleontology, the study of extinct life, had in recent years taken on an unexpected relevance to the modern world. The modern world was changing fast. Urgent questions about the weather, deforestation, global warming, or the ozone layer often seemed answerable, at least in part, with information from the past. Information that paleontologists could provide. He had been called as an expert witness twice in the past few years. Grant started down the hill to meet the car. The visitor coughed in the white dust as he slammed the car door. Ah, uh, Bob Morris, EPA, he said, extending his hand. I'm with the San Francisco office. Grant introduced himself and said, You look hot. Want a beer? Jesus, yeah. Morris was in his late twenties wearing a tie and pants from a business suit. He carried a briefcase and his wingtip shoes crunched on the rocks as they walked. When I first came over the hill, I thought this was an Indian reservation, Morris said, pointing to the teepees. No, Grant said. Just the best way to live out here. Grant explained that in 1978, the first year of the excavations, they had come out in North Slope octahedral tents, the most advanced available. But the tents always blew over in the wind. They tried other kinds of tents with the same result. Finally, they started putting up teepees, which were larger inside, more comfortable, and more stable in the wind. These are Blackford teepees built around four poles, Grant said. Sioux teepees are built around three, but this used to be Blackfoot territory, so we thought... Uh-huh, Morris said. Very fitting. He squinted at the desolate landscape and shook his head. How long you been here? About sixty cases, Grant said. When Morris looked surprised, he explained. We measure time in beer. We start in June with a hundred cases, and we've gone through sixty so far. Sixty-three, to be exact. Ellie Sattler joined in as they reached the trailer. Grant was amused to see Morris gaping at her. Ellie was wearing cut-off jeans and a work shirt tied at her midriff. She was 24 and darkly tanned, with her blonde hair pulled back. Ellie keeps us going, Grant said. She's very good at what she does. What does she do? Morris asked. Paleobotany, Ellie said. And I also do the standard field preps. She opened the door and they went inside. The air conditioning in the trailer only brought the temperature down to 85 degrees, but it seemed cool after midday heat. The trailer had a series of long wooden tables with tiny bone specimens neatly laid out, tagged and labelled. Farther along were ceramic dishes and crocks. There was a strong odour of vinegar. Morris glanced at the bones. I thought dinosaurs were big, he said. They were, Ellie said, but everything you see here comes from babies. Snake water is important primarily because of the number of dinosaur nesting sites here. Until we started this work, there were hardly any infant dinosaurs known. Only one nest had ever been found in the Gobi Desert. We've discovered a dozen different hardosaur nests, complete with eggs and bones of infants. While Grant went to the refrigerator, she showed Morris the ascetic acid baths which were used to dissolve away limestone from delicate bones. They look like chicken bones, Morris said, peering into the ceramic dishes. Yes, they're very bird-like, she said. What about those, Morris said, pointing through the trailer window to piles of large bones outside wrapped in heavy plastic. 
rejects, Ellie said. Bones too fragmentary when we took them out of the ground. In the old days, we'd just discard them, but nowadays we send them for genetic testing. Genetic testing, Morris said. Here you go. Grant thrust a beer into his hand. He gave another to Ellie, and she chugged hers, throwing her long neck back. Morris stared. We're pretty informal here, Grant said. Want to step into my office? Sure, Morris said. Grant led him to the end of the trailer where there was a torn couch, a sagging chair, and a battered end table. Grant dropped onto the couch, which creaked and exhaled a cloud of chalky dust. He leaned back, thumped his boots up on the end table, and gestured for Morris to sit in the chair. Make yourself comfortable. Grant was a professor of paleontology at the University of Denver, one of the foremost researchers in his field, but... He had never been comfortable with social niceties. He saw himself as an outdoor man. He knew that all important work in paleontology was done outdoors. With your hands. Grant had little patience for the academics, for museum curators, for what he called teacup dinosaur hunters. And he took some pains to distance himself in dress and behavior from the teacup dinosaur hunters. Even delivering his lectures in jeans and sneakers. Grant watched as Morris Primley brushed off the seat of the chair before he sat down. Morris opened his briefcase, rummaged through his papers and glanced back at Ellie, who was lifting bones with tweezers from the acid bath at the other end of the trailer, paying no attention to them. You're probably wondering why I'm here. Grant nodded. It's a long way to come, Mr. Morris. Well, Morris said, to get right to the point, the EPA is concerned about the activities of the Hammond Foundation. You received some funding from them. $30,000 a year, Grant said, for the last five years. What do you know about the Foundation? said Morris. Grant shrugged. The Hammond Foundation is a respected source of academic grants. They fund research all over the world, including several dinosaur researchers. I know they support Bob Kerry out in Alberta and... John Weller in Alaska, probably more. Do you know why the Hammond Foundation supports so much dinosaur research? Of course, because John Hammond is a dinosaur nut. You've met Hammond? Grant shrugged. That's all twice. He comes here for brief visits. He's quite elderly, you know. An eccentric. The way rich people sometimes are. But always very enthusiastic. Why? Well, said Morris... The Hammond Foundation is actually a rather mysterious organization. He pulled out a Xeroxed world map, marked with red dots, and passed it to Grant. These are the digs the Foundation financed last year. There was anything odd about them. Montana, Alaska, Canada, Sweden. They're all sites in the north. There's nothing below the 45th parallel. Morris pulled out more maps. It's the same. Year after year, Dinosaur projects to the south in Utah, Colorado, Mexico, they never get funded. The Hammond Foundation only supports cold-weather digs. I'd like to know why. Grant shuffled through the maps quickly. If it was true the Foundation only supported cold-weather digs, then it was strange behavior, because some of the best dinosaur researchers were working in hot climates. And there are other puzzles, Morris said. For example, what is the relationship of dinosaurs to amber? Amber? Yes, it's the hard yellow resin of dried tree- I know what it is, Grant said. But why are you asking? Because, 
Over the last five years, Hammond has purchased enormous quantities of amber in America, Europe, and Asia, including many pieces of museum-quality jewelry. The foundation has spent $17 million on amber. They now possess the largest privately held stock of this material in the world. I don't get it, Grant said. Neither does anybody else. As far as we can tell, it doesn't make any sense at all. Amber is easily synthesized. It has no commercial or defense value. There's no reason to stockpile it. But Hammond has done just that. Over many years. Amber, Grant said, shaking his head. And what about his island in Costa Rica? Morris continued. Ten years ago, the Hammond Foundation leased an island from the government of Costa Rica, supposedly to set up a biological preserve. I don't know anything about that, Grant said, frowning. Well, I haven't been able to find out much. The island is a hundred miles off the west coast. It's very rugged. It's an area of ocean where the combinations of wind and current make it almost perpetually covered in fog. They used to call it Cloud Island, Isla Nubla. Apparently the Costa Ricans were amazed that anybody would want it. Morris searched in his briefcase. The reason I mentioned it, he said. According to records, you were paid a consultant's fee in connection with this island. I was? Morris passed a sheet of paper to Grant. It was the Xerox of a check issued in March 1984 from InGen. Oh, sure, I remember that. It was weird as hell, but I remember it. It didn't have anything to do with an island. Alan Grant had found the first clutch of dinosaur eggs in Montana in 1979, and many more in the next two years. But he hadn't gotten around to publishing his findings until 1983. His paper, with its report of a herd of a 10,000 duck-billed dinosaurs living along the shore of a vast inland sea, building communal nests of eggs in the mud, raising their infant dinosaurs in the herd, made Grant a celebrity overnight. The notion of maternal instincts in giant dinosaurs, the drawings of cute babies poking their snouts out of eggs, had appeal around the world. Grant was besieged with requests for interviews, lectures, and books. Characteristically, he turned them all down, wanting only to continue his excavations. But it was during those frantic days of the mid-1980s that he was approached by the InGen Corporation with a request for consulting services. Had you heard of InGen before? Morris asked. No. How did they contact you? Telephone call. It was a man named Gennaro or Janino, something like that. Morris nodded. Donald Gennaro. He's the legal counsel for InGen. Anyway, he wanted to know about eating habits of dinosaurs. He offered me a fee to draw up a paper for him. Grant drank his beer and set the can on the floor. Gennaro was particularly interested in young dinosaurs. Infants, juveniles. What they ate, I guess he thought I would know that. Did you? Not really. No, I told him that. We had found lots of skeletal material, but we had very little dietary data. Gennaro said he knew we hadn't published everything, and he just wanted whatever we had. And he offered a very large fee, $50,000. Morris took out a tape recorder and set it on the end table. You mind? No, go ahead. So, Gennaro telephoned you in 1984. What happened then? Well, Grant said... You see our operation here, 50,000 would support two full summers of digging. I told him I'd do what I could. So you agreed to prepare a paper for him? Yes. On the dietary habits of juvenile dinosaurs? Yes. 
You met Gennaro? No, just on the phone. Did Gennaro say why he wanted this information? Yeah, he was planning a museum for children. He wanted to feature baby dinosaurs. He said he was hiring a number of academic consultants and named them. There were paleontologists like me and a mathematician from Texas named Ian Malcolm. And a couple of ecologists. A systems analyst. Good group. Morris nodded, making notes. So you accepted the consultancy? Yeah. I agreed to send him a summary of our work and what we knew about the habits of the duck-billed hadrosaurs that we'd found. What kind of information did you send? Morris asked. Everything. Nesting behavior, territorial ranges, feeding behavior, social behavior, everything. And how did Gennaro respond? He kept calling and calling. Sometimes in the middle of the night. Would the dinosaurs eat this? Would they eat that? Should the exhibit include this? I could never understand why he was so worked up. I mean, I think dinosaurs are important too, but not that important. They've been dead 65 million years. You'd think his calls could wait till morning. I see. And the $50,000? Grant shook his head. I got tired of Gennaro and I called the whole thing off. We settled up for 12000 That must have been about the middle of 85. Morris made a note. And InGen? Any other contact with them? Not since 85. And when did the Hammond Foundation begin to fund your research? I'd have to look, Grant said, but... It was around the mid-80s. And you know Hammond is just a rich dinosaur enthusiast. Yeah. Morris made another note. Look, Grant said. If the EPA is so concerned about John Hammond and what he's doing, the dinosaur sites in the north, the amber purchases, the island in Costa Rica, why don't you just ask him? At the moment, we can't. Why not? We don't have any evidence of wrongdoing. Personally, I think it's clear that John Hammond is evading the law. I was first contacted, Morris explained, by the Office of Technology Transfer. The OTT monitors shipments of American technology which might have military significance. They called to say that InGen had two areas of possible illegal technology transfer. First, InGen shipped three Cray XMPs to Costa Rica. InGen characterized it as a transfer within corporate divisions, said they weren't for resale. But OTT couldn't imagine why the hell somebody would need that much power in Costa Rica. Three Krays? Is that some kind of computer? Morris nodded. Very powerful supercomputers. To put it in perspective, three Krays represent more computing power than any other privately held company in America. And InGen sent the machines to Costa Rica. You have to wonder why. I give up. Why? Grant said. Nobody knows. And the hoods are even more worrisome. Hoods are automated gene sequences, machines that work out the genetic code by themselves. They're so new that they haven't been put on the restricted list yet. But any genetic engineering lab's likely to have one. If it can afford the half a million dollar price tag, that is. He flipped through his notes. It seems InGen shipped 24 hood sequences to their island in Costa Rica. Again, they said it was a transfer within divisions and not an export. There wasn't much the OTT could do, they're not officially concerned with use. But InGen was obviously setting up one of the most powerful genetic engineering facilities in the world. In an obscure Central American country, a country with no regulation. That kind of thing's happened before. 
There had been cases already of American bioengineering companies moving to another country so they would not be hampered by regulation and rule. The most flagrant, Morris explained, was the Biosyn rabies case. In 1986, Genetic Biosyn Corporation of Cupertino tested a bioengineered rabies vaccine on a farm in Chile. They didn't inform the government of Chile or the farm workers involved. They simply released the vaccine. The vaccine consisted of a live rabies virus, genetically modified to be non-virulent, but the virulence hadn't been tested. Biosyn didn't know whether the virus could still cause rabies or not. Even worse, the virus had been modified. Ordinarily, you couldn't contract rabies unless you were bitten by an animal. But Biosyn modified the rabies virus to cross the pulmonary alveoli, and you could get an infection just inhaling it. Biosyn staffers brought this live rabies virus down to Chile in a carry-on bag on a commercial airline flight. Morris often wondered what would have happened if the capsule had broken open during the flight. Everybody on the plane might have been infected with rabies. It was outrageous. It was irresponsible. It was criminally negligent. But no action was taken against Biosyn. The Chilean farmers who unwittingly risked their lives were ignorant peasants. The government of Chile had an economic crisis to worry about, and the American authorities had no jurisdiction. So Lewis Dodgson, the geneticist responsible for the test, was still working at Biosyn. Biosyn was still as reckless as ever, and other American companies were hurrying to set up facilities in foreign countries that lacked sophistication about genetic research. Countries that perceived genetic engineering to be like any other high-tech development and welcomed it into their land, unaware of danger posed. So that's why we began our investigation of InGen. About three weeks ago, said Morris. And what have you actually found, said Grant. Not much, Morris admitted. When I go back to San Francisco, we'll probably have to close it up. Close the investigation. I think I'm about finished here. He started packing up his briefcase. By the way, what does juvenile hyperspace mean? Oh, it's just a fancy label for my report. Hyperspace is a term for multidimensional space, like three-dimensional tic-tac-toe. If you were to take all the behaviors of an animal, it's eating, movement, sleeping. You could plot the animal within a multidimensional space. Some paleontologists refer to the behavior of an animal as occurring in an ecological hyperspace. Juvenile hyperspace would just refer to the behavior of juvenile dinosaurs, if you wanted to be as pretentious as possible. At the far end of the trailer, the phone rang and Ellie answered it. She said, He's in a meeting right now. Can uh, he call you back? Morris snapped his briefcase shut and stood. Thanks for your help and the beer. No problem, Grant said. Grant walked with Morris down the trailer to the door at the far end. Morris said, Did Hammond ever ask for any physical materials from your site? Bones? Eggs? Anything like that? No. Dr. Sattler mentioned that you do some genetic work here. Well... Not exactly, Grant said. When we remove fossils that are broken, or for some other reason not suitable for museum preservation, we send the bones to a lab that grinds them up and tries to extract proteins for us. The proteins are then identified and the report is sent back to us. Which lab is that? Morris asked. Uh, Medical Biologic Services in Salt Lake. How'd you choose them? Competitive bids. The lab has nothing to do with InGen, 
Morris asked. Not that I know of, said Grant. They came to the door of the trailer. Grant opened it and felt the rush of hot air from outside. Morris paused and put on his sunglasses. One last thing, said Morris. Suppose InGen wasn't really making a museum exhibit? Is there anything else they could have done with the information in the report that you gave them? Grant laughed. Sure. They could feed a baby hadrosaur. Morris laughed too. A baby hadrosaur. That'd be something to see. How big were they? About so, Grant said, holding his hands six inches apart. Squirrel size. And how long before they become full grown? Three years, give or take. Morris held out his hand. Well, thanks again for your help. Take it easy driving back, said Grant. He watched for a moment as Morris walked back towards his car and closed the trailer door. Grant said, What do you think? Ellie shrugged, naive. You like the part where John Hammond's the evil arch-villain? Grant laughed. John Hammond's about as sinister as Walt Disney. By the way, who called? Oh, Ellie said. It was a woman named Alice Levin. She works at Columbia Medical. Do you know her? Grant shook his head. No. Well, it was something about identifying some remains. She wants you to call her back. Right away. Ellie Sattler brushed a strand of blonde hair back from her face and turned her attention to the acid baths. She had six in a row, at molar strengths from 5 to 30%. She had to keep an eye on the stronger solutions because they would eat through limestone and begin to erode the bones. Infant dinosaur bones were so fragile. She marveled that they had been preserved at all after 18 million years. She listened idly as Grant said, Miss Levin, this is Alan Grant. What's this about a... You have what? A what? He began to laugh. Oh, I doubt that very much, Miss Levin. No, I, I really don't have time, I'm sorry. Well, I, I would take a look at it, but I can pretty much guarantee it's a basilisk lizard, but... Yes, you can do that. All right, send it now. Grant hung up and shook his head. These people. Ellie said, What's it about? Some lizard she's trying to identify, Grant said. She's going to fax me an x-ray. He walked over to the fax and waited as the transmission came through. Incidentally, I've got a new find for you. A good one. Yes? Grant nodded. Found it just before the kid showed up. On South Hill, Horizon 4. Infant Velociraptor. Jaw, complete dentition. So there's no question about identity. The site looks undisturbed. We might even get a full skeleton. That's fantastic, Ellie said. How young? Young, Grant said. Two, maybe four months at most. And it's definitely a velociraptor. Definitely, Grant said. Maybe our luck has finally turned. For the last two years at Snakewater, the team had excavated only duck-billed hadrosaurs. They already had evidence for vast herds of these grazing dinosaurs, roaming the Cretaceous Plains in groups of 10 or 20,000, as buffalo would later roam. But increasingly, the question that faced them was, where were the predators? 
They expected predators to be rare, of course. Studies of predator-prey populations in the game parks of Africa and India suggested that. Roughly speaking, there is one predatory carnivore for every 400 herbivores. That meant a herd of 10,000 duckbills would support only 25 tyrannosaurs, so it was unlikely that they would find the remains of a large predator. But where were the smaller predators? Snakewater had dozens of nesting sites. In some places, the ground was literally covered with fragments of dinosaur eggshells, and many small dinosaurs ate eggs. Animals like the Oviraptor and Velociraptor, predators three to six feet tall, must have been found here in abundance, but they had discovered none so far. Perhaps this Velociraptor skeleton did mean their luck had changed, and an infant. Ellie knew that one of Grant's dreams was to study infant-rearing behavior in carnivorous dinosaurs, as he had already studied the behavior of herbivores. Perhaps this was the first step towards that dream. You must be pretty excited, Ellie said. Grant didn't answer. I said you must be excited, Ellie repeated herself. My God, said Grant. He was staring at the facts. Ellie looked over Grant's shoulder at the x-ray and breathed out slowly. You think it's an Amasicus? Yes or a Triassicus that the skeleton is so light. But it's no lizard, she said. No, this is not a lizard. No three-toed lizard has walked on this planet for 200 million years. Ellie's first thought was that she was looking at a hoax, an ingenious, skillful hoax, but a hoax nonetheless. Every biologist knew that the threat of a hoax was omnipresent, the most famous hoax, the Piltdown Man, had gone undetected for 40 years. Its perpetrator was still unknown. More recently, the distinguished astronomer Fred Hoyle had claimed that a fossil-winged dinosaur on display in the British Museum was a fraud. It was later shown to be genuine. The essence of a successful hoax was that it presented scientists with what they expected to see. And to Ellie's eye, the X-ray image of the lizard was exactly correct. The three-toed foot was well-balanced, with the medial claw smallest. The bony remnants of the fourth and fifth toes were located up near the metatarsal joint. The tibia was strong and considerably longer than the femur. The tail showed 45 vertebrae. It was a young Procompsognathus. Could this X-ray be faked? I don't know, Grant said, but it's almost impossible to fake an x-ray, and a Procomsognathus is an obscure animal. Even people familiar with dinosaurs have never heard of it. Ellie read the note. Specimen acquired on the beach of Cabo Blanco, July 16th. Apparently a howler monkey was eating the animal. This was all that was recovered? And it says the lizard attacked a little girl. I doubt that, Grant said. But perhaps. Procomsognathus was so small and light, we assume it must be a scavenger, only feeding off dead creatures. You can tell the size, he measured quickly. It's about 20 centimeters to the hips, which means the full animal would be about a foot tall, about as big as a chicken. Even a child would look pretty fearsome to it. It might bite an infant, but 
Not a child. Ellie frowned at the x-ray image. You think this could really be a legitimate rediscovery? Like the coelacanth? Maybe, Grant said. The coelacanth was a five-foot-long fish thought to have died out 65 million years ago, until a specimen was pulled from the ocean in 1938. But there were other examples. The Australian mountain pygmy possum was known only from fossils until a live one was found in a garbage can in Melbourne. A 10,000-year-old fossil fruit bat from New Guinea was described by a zoologist who not long afterwards received a living specimen in the mail. But could it be real, she persisted. What about the age? Grant nodded. The age is the problem. Most rediscovered animals were rather recent additions to the fossil record, 10 or 20,000 years old. Some were a few million years old, in the case of the coelacanth. 65 million years old. But the specimen they were looking at was much, much older than that. Dinosaurs had died out in the Cretaceous period 65 million years ago. They had flourished as the dominant life form on the planet in the Jurassic 190 million years ago. And they had first appeared in the Triassic 220 million years ago. It was during the early Triassic period that Procomsognathus had lived, a time so distant that our planet didn't even look the same. All the continents were joined together in a single landmass called Pangaea, which extended from the north to the south pole, a vast continent of ferns and forests with a few large deserts. The Atlantic Ocean was a narrow lake between what would become Africa and Florida. The air was denser, the land was warmer. There were hundreds of active volcanoes, and it was in this environment that Procomsognathus lived. Well, Ellie said, we know animals have survived. Crocodiles are basically Triassic animals living in the present. Sharks are Triassic. We know it's happened before. Grant nodded. And the thing is, he said, how else do we explain it? It's either a fake, which I doubt, or else it's a rediscovery. What else could it be? The phone rang. Alice Levin again, Grant said. Let's see if she'll send us the actual specimen. He answered it and looked at Ellie, surprised. Yes, I'll hold for Mr. Hammond. Yes, of course. Hammond, what does he want? Ellie said. Grant shook his head and said into the phone. Yes, Mr. Hammond. Yes, it's, uh, it's good to hear your voice, too. Yes. He looked at Ellie. Oh, oh, you did? Yes, is that right? He cupped his hand over the mouthpiece and said, Still as eccentric as ever, you've got to hear this. A hell of an annoyance from some EPA fellow. Seems to have gone off half-cocked all on his own, running around the country talking to people, stirring up things. I don't suppose anybody's come to see you way out there. As a matter of fact, Grant said, somebody did come to see me. Hammond snorted. I was afraid of that smart-ass kid named Morris? Yes, his name was Morris, Grant said. He's going to see all our consultants, said Hammond. He went to see Ian Malcolm the other day, you know, the mathematician in Texas. That's the first I knew of it. 
We're having one hell of a time getting a handle on this thing. It's typical of the way the government operates. There isn't any complaint, there isn't any charge, just harassment from some kid who's unsupervised and is running around at the taxpayer's expense. Did, did he bother you? Disrupt your work? No, no, he didn't bother me. Well, that's too bad in a way, because I'd, I'd try to get an injunction to stop him if he had. As it is, I had our lawyers call over at EPA to find out what the hell their problem is. The head of the office claims he didn't know there was any investigation at all. You figure that one out. Damned bureaucracy is all it is. Hell, I think this kid's trying to get down to Costa Rica. Poke around, get onto our island. You know we have an island down there. No. Grant looked at Ellie. I didn't know. Oh yes, we bought it. Started our operation four or five years ago. I forget exactly. What is Nubla? Big island, 100 miles offshore. Going to be a biological preserve. Wonderful place. Tropical jungle, you know. You want to see it, Dr. Grant. Sounds interesting. But actually, it's almost finished now, you know. I've sent you some material about it. Did you get my material? No, but we're pretty far from... Maybe it'll come today. Look it over. The island's just beautiful. It's got everything. We've been in construction now for 30 months. You can imagine. Big park. Opens in September next year. You really ought to see it. It sounds wonderful, but as a matter of fact, I'm going to insist you see it, Dr. Grant. I know you'd find it right up your alley. You'd find it fascinating. I'm in the middle of... Grant said. Say, I'll tell you what, said Hammond, as if the idea had just occurred to him. I'm having some of the people who consulted for us to go down there this weekend. Spend a few days and look it over. At our expense, of course, it'd be terrific for you to give us your opinion. I couldn't possibly, said Grant. Oh, just for a weekend, Hammond said, with an irritating, cheery persistence of an old man. That's all I'm talking about, Dr. Grant. I wouldn't want to interrupt your work. I know how important that work is. Believe me, I know that. Never interrupt your work, but you could hop on down there this weekend and be back on Monday. No, I couldn't, Grant said. I've just found a new skeleton and... Yes, fine. But I still think you should come, Hammond said, not really listening. We've just received some evidence for a very puzzling and remarkable find, which seems to be a living Procomsognathid. What? Hammond said, slowing down. I didn't quite get that. You said a living Procomsognathid. That's right, said Grant. It's a biological specimen, a partial fragment of an animal collected from Central America. A living animal. You don't say. A living animal. How extraordinary, said Hammond. Yes, said Grant. We think so too. So you see, this isn't the time for me to be leaving. Central America, did you say? Yes. Where in Central America is it from, do you know? A beach called Cabo Blanco. I don't know exactly where. I see. <clears throat> Hammond cleared his throat. And when did this um, specimen arrive in your hands? Just today. Today. I see. Today. Yes. I see. Hammond cleared his throat again. Grant looked at Ellie and mouthed. What's going on? Ellie shook her head. Sounds upset. Grant mouthed. See if Morris is still here. She went out to the window and looked out, but Morris's car was gone. She turned back. 
On the speaker, Hammond coughed. Uh, Dr. Grant, have you told anybody about it yet? No. Good, that's good. Well, yes. I'll tell you frankly, Dr. Grant. I'm having a little problem about this island. This EPA thing is coming at just the wrong time. How's that? Grant said. Well, we've had our problems and some delays. Let's just say I'm under a little pressure here, and I'd like you to look at this island for me. Give me your opinion. I'll be paying you the usual weekend consultant rate of 20000 a day. That'd be 60000 for three days, and if you can spare Dr. Sattler, she'll go at the same rate. We need a botanist. What do you say? Ellie looked at Grant as he said, Well, Mr. Hammond, that much money would fully finance our expeditions for the next two summers. Good, good, Hammond said blandly. He seemed distracted now, his thoughts elsewhere. I want this to be easy. I'm sending the corporate jet to pick you up at that private airfield. You know the one I mean. It's only about two hours' drive from where you are. You be there at 5 p.m. tomorrow. I'll be waiting for you. Take you right down. Can you and Dr. Sattler make that plane? I guess we can. Good. Pack lightly. You don't need passports. I'm looking forward to it. See you tomorrow. Hammond hung up. Midday sun streamed into the San Francisco law offices of Cohen, Swain, and Ross, giving the room a cheerfulness that Donald Gennaro did not feel. He listened on the phone and looked at his boss, Daniel Ross, cold as an undertaker in his dark, pinstripe suit. I understand, John, Gennaro said. And Grant agreed to come? Good, good. Yeah, that sounds fine to me. My congratulations, John. He hung up on the phone and turned to Ross. We can't trust Hammond anymore. He's under too much pressure. The EPA's investigating him. He's behind schedule on his Costa Rican resort, and the investors are getting nervous. There have been too many rumors of problems down there. Too many workmen have died. And now this business about a living procumps and whatever on the mainland. What does that mean, Ross said. Maybe nothing, Gennaro said. But Hamachi's one of our principal investors. I got a report last week from Hamachi's representative in San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. According to the report, some new kind of lizard is biting children on the coast. Ross blinked. A new lizard? Yeah. We can't screw around with this. We've got to inspect the island right away. I've asked Hammond to arrange independent site inspections every week for the next three weeks. And what does Hammond say? He insists nothing is wrong on the island. Claims he has all these security precautions. But you don't believe him? No, Gennaro said. I don't. Donald Gennaro had come to Cohen Swain from a background in investment banking. Cohen Swain's high-tech clients frequently needed capitalization, and Gennaro helped them find the money. One of his first assignments back in 1982 had been to accompany John Hammond while the old man, then nearly 70, put together the funding to start InGen Corporation. They eventually raised almost a billion dollars. Gennaro remembered it as a wild ride. Hammond's a dreamer, Gennaro said. A potentially dangerous dreamer, Ross said. We should never have gotten involved. What's our financial position? The firm, Gennaro said, owns 5%. General or limited? General. 
Ross shook his head. We should never have done that. It seemed wise at the time, Gennaro said. Hell, it was eight years ago. We took it in lieu of some fees, and if you remember, Hammond's plan was extremely speculative. He was really pushing the envelope. Nobody really thought he could pull it off. But apparently he has, Ross said. In any case, I agree an inspection's overdue. And what about your site experts? I'm starting with experts that Hammond already hired as consultants early in the project. Gennaro tossed a list onto Ross's desk. First group's a paleontologist, paleobotanist, and a mathematician. They go down this weekend. I'll go with them. Will they tell you the truth, Ross said? I think so. None of them had much to do with this island, and one of them, the mathematician Ian Malcolm, was openly hostile to the project from the start. Insisted it would never work, could never work. And who else? Just a technical person. Computer system analyst. Review the park's computers, fix some bugs. He should be there by Friday morning. Fine, Ross said. You're making the arrangements? Hammond asked to place the calls himself. I think he wants to pretend he's not in trouble, that it's just a social invitation, showing off his island. All right, Ross said. Just make sure it happens. Stay on top of it. I want this Costa Rican situation resolved within a week. Ross got up and walked out of the room. Gennaro dialed, heard the whining hiss of a radio phone, and heard a voice say, Grant here. Hi, Dr. Grant. This is Donald Gennaro. I'm general counsel for InGen. We talked a few years back. I don't know if you remember. I remember, said Grant. Well, Gennaro said, I just got off the phone with John Hammond, who tells me the good news that you're coming down to our island in Costa Rica and... Yes, said Grant. I guess we're going down there tomorrow. Well, I just wanted to extend my thanks to you for doing this on short notice. Everybody at InGen appreciates it. We've asked Ian Malcolm, who, like you, was one of the early consultants, to come down as well. He's the mathematician at UT in Austin. John Hammond mentioned that, said Grant. Well, good, Gennaro said. And I'll be coming too, as a matter of fact. By the way, this specimen you found of a pro... Procom... What is it? Procompsognathus, said Grant. Yeah. Do you have the specimen with you, Dr. Grant? The actual specimen? No, Grant said. I've only seen an x-ray. The specimen is in New York. A woman from Columbia University called me. Well, I wonder if you could give me the details on that. Then I can run down that specimen for Mr. Hammond, who's very excited about it. I'm sure you want to see the actual specimen, too. Perhaps I can even get it delivered to the island while you're all down there. Grant gave him the information. Well, that's fine, Dr. Grant. My regards to Dr. Sattler. I look forward to meeting you and him tomorrow. And Gennaro hung up. This just came, Ellie said the next day, walking to the back of the trailer with a thick manila envelope. One of the kids brought it back from town. It's from Hammond. Grant noticed the blue and white InGen logo as he tore open the envelope. Inside, there was no cover letter, just a bound stack of paper. Pulling it out, he discovered that it was blueprints. They were reduced, forming a thick book. The cover was marked, Isla Nubla, Guest Resort Facilities, Full Set Safari Lodge. The hell is this, he said. He flipped open the book and a sheet of paper fell out. Dear Alan and Ellie, 
As you can imagine, we don't have much in the way of a formal promotional materials yet, but this should give you an idea of the Isla Nubla project. I think it's very exciting. Looking forward to discussing this with you. Hope you can join us. Regards, John. I don't get it, Grant said. He flipped through the sheets. These are architectural plans. He turned to the top sheet. Visitor Center. Client InGen. Architects Dunning Murphy Associates. Design Partner Richard Murphy York. Engineers Landscaping Electrical Computer. Grant turned to the plans themselves. They were stamped industrial secrets do not copy. Confidential work product not for distribution. Each sheet was numbered and at the top, these plans represent confidential creations of InGen Inc. You must have signed document 1124A or risk prosecution. Looks pretty paranoid to me, he said. The next page was a topographical map. It showed Isla Nubler as an inverted teardrop, bulging at the north, tapering at the south. The island was eight miles long. The map divided it into several large sections. The northern section was marked Visitor Area, and it contained structures marked Visitor Arrivals, Visitor Center Administration, Power, Support, Hammond Residence, and Safari Lodge. Grant could see the outline of a swimming pool, rectangles of tennis courts, and round squiggles that represented planting and shrubbery. It looks like a resort, all right, said Ellie. There followed detailed sheets for the Safari Lodge itself, in the elevation sketches, the lodge looked dramatic. A long, low building with a series of pyramid shapes on the roof. But there was little about the other buildings in the visitor area. The rest of the island was even more mysterious. And as far as Grant could tell, it was mostly open space. A network of roads, tunnels, and outlying buildings. A long, thin lake that appeared to be man-made, with concrete dams and barriers. But for the most part, the island was divided into big, curving areas with very little development at all. Each area was marked by codes. Is there an explanation for the codes, she said? Grant flipped the pages rapidly, but he couldn't find one. Maybe they took it out, she said. I'm telling you, Grant said. Paranoid. He looked at the big curving divisions separated from one another by a network of roads. There were only six divisions on the whole island, and each division was separated from the road by a concrete moat. Outside each moat was a fence with a little lightning sign alongside it. That mystified them until they were finally able to figure out that it meant the fences were electrified. That's odd, she said. Electrified fences at a resort? Miles of them, said Grant. Electrified fences and moats together usually with a long road alongside them as well. Just like a zoo, Ellie said. They went back to the topographical map and looked closely at the contour lines. The roads had been placed oddly. The main road ran north-south right through central hills of the island, including one section of road that seemed to be literally cut into the side of a cliff above a river. It began to look as if there had been a deliberate effort to leave these open areas as big enclosures, separated from the roads by moats and electric fences, and the roads were raised above ground level, 
so that you could see over the fences. You know, Ellie said, some of these dimensions are enormous. Look at this. This concrete moat is 30 feet wide. That's like a military fortification. So are these buildings, said Grant. He had noticed that each open division had a few buildings usually located in out-of-the-way corners, but the buildings were all concrete with thick walls. In side-view elevations, they looked like concrete bunkers with small windows, like pillboxes from old war movies. At that moment, they heard a muffled explosion, and Grant put the papers aside. Back to work, he said. There was a slight vibration, and then yellow contour lines traced across the computer screen. This time, the resolution was perfect, and Alan Grant had a glimpse of a skeleton beautifully defined the long neck arched back. It was unquestionably an infant velociraptor, and it looked imperfect. The screen went blank. I hate computers, said Grant, squinting in the sun. What happened now? Lost the integrator input, one of the kids said. Just a minute. The kid bent to look at the tangle of wires going into the back of the battery-powered portable computer. They had set the computer up on a beer carton on top of Hill 4, not far from the device that they called Thumper. Grant sat down on the side of the hill and looked at his watch. He said to Ellie, We're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. One of the kids overheard, Ah, Alan. Look, I've got a plane to catch. I want the fossil protected before I go. Once you began to expose a fossil, you had to continue or risk losing it. Visitors imagined the landscape of the Badlands to be unchanging, but in fact it was continuously eroding, literally right before your eyes. All day long you could hear the clatter of pebbles rolling down crumbling hillside. There was always the risk of a rainstorm, even a brief shower would wash away a delicate fossil. Thus, Grant's partially exposed skeleton was at risk, and it had to be protected until he returned. Fossil protection ordinarily consisted of a tarp over the site, a trench around the perimeter to control water runoff. The question was how large a trench the Velociraptor fossil required. To decide that, they were using computer-assisted sonic tomography, or CAST. This was a new procedure in which Thumper fired a soft lead slug into the ground. This set up shockwaves that were read by the computer and assembled into the kind of x-ray image of the hillside. They had been using it all summer with varying results. Thumper was twenty feet away now, a big silver box on wheels with an umbrella on top. It looked like an ice cream vendor's pushcart parked incongruously on the Badlands. Thumper had two youthful attendants loading the next soft lead pellet. So far, the cast program merely located the extent of fines, helping Grant's team to dig more efficiently. But the kids claimed that within a few years it would be possible to generate an image so detailed that excavation would be redundant. You could get a perfect image of the bones in three dimensions and it promised a whole new era of archaeology without excavation. But none of that had happened yet, 
and the equipment that worked flawlessly in the university lab proved pitifully delicate and fickle in the field. How much longer, said Grant. We got it now, Alan. It's not bad. Grant went to look at the computer screen. He saw the complete skeleton, traced in bright yellow. It was indeed a young specimen, the outstanding characteristic of a velociraptor. The single-toed claw, which in a full-grown animal was a curved six-inch-long weapon, capable of ripping open its prey. In this infant, it was no larger than the thorn on a rosebush. It was hardly visible at all on the screen, and the Velociraptor was a lightly built dinosaur in any case, an animal as fine-boned as a bird, and presumably as intelligent. Here, the skeleton appeared in perfect order, except that the head and neck were bent back towards the posterior. Such neck flexion was so common in fossils that some scientists had formulated a theory to explain it, suggesting dinosaurs had become extinct because they had been poisoned by the evolving alkaloids in plants. The twisted neck was thought to signify death agony of the dinosaurs. Grant had finally put that one to rest by demonstrating that many species of birds and reptiles underwent a post-mortem contraction of posterior neck ligaments, which would bend the head backwards in a characteristic way. It had nothing to do with the cause of death. It had to do with the way that a carcass dried in the sun. Grant saw this particular skeleton had also been twisted laterally, so that the right leg and foot were raised up above the backbone. It looks kind of distorted, one of the kids said. But I don't think it's the computer. No, it's just time, said Grant. Lots and lots of time. Grant knew that people could not imagine geological time. Human life was lived on another scale of time entirely. An apple turned brown in a few minutes. Silverware turned black in a few days. A compost heap decayed in a season. A child grew up in a decade. None of these everyday human experiences prepared people to be able to imagine the meaning of 80 million years, the length of time that had passed since this little animal had died. In the classroom, Grant had tried different comparisons. If you imagined the human lifespan of 60 years was compressed to a day, then 80 million years would still be 3,652 years older than the pyramids. The Velociraptor had been dead a long time. Doesn't look very fearsome, one of the kids said. He wasn't. At least, not until he grew up, said Grant. Probably this baby had scavenged, feeding off of carcasses slain by adults after the big animals had gorged themselves and lay basking in the sun. Carnivores could eat as much as 25% of their body weight in a single meal, and it made them sleepy afterwards. Babies would chitter and scramble over the indulgent, somnolent bodies of the adults and nip little bites from the dead animal. The babies were probably cute little animals, but an adult velociraptor was another matter entirely. 
pound for pound, a Velociraptor was the most rapacious dinosaur that ever lived. Although relatively small, about 200 pounds, the size of a leopard, Velociraptors were quick, intelligent, vicious, able to attack with sharp jaws, powerful clawed forearms, and the devastating single claw on the foot. Velociraptors hunted in packs, and Grant thought that it must have been a sight to see a dozen of these animals racing at full speed, leaping onto the back of a much larger dinosaur, tearing at the neck, slashing at the ribs and belly. We're running out of time, said Ellie, bringing him back. Grant gave instructions for the trench. From the computer image, they knew that the skeleton lay in a relatively confined area. A ditch around a two-meter square would be sufficient. Meanwhile, Ellie lashed down the tarp that covered the side of the hill. Grant helped her pound in the final stakes. How did the baby die? One of the kids asked. I doubt we'll know, said Grant. Infant mortality in the wild is high. In African packs, it runs 70% among some carnivores. It could have been anything. Disease, separation from the group, anything. Even attack by an adult. We know these animals hunted in packs, but we don't know anything about their social behavior in a group. The students nodded. They had all studied animal behavior, and they knew, for example, that when a new male took over a lion pride, the first thing he did was kill all the cubs. The reason was apparently genetic. The male had evolved to disseminate his genes as widely as possible, and by killing the cubs he brought all the females into heat so he could impregnate them. It also prevented the females from wasting their time nurturing the offspring of another male. Perhaps the Velociraptor hunting pack was also ruled by a dominant male. They knew so little about dinosaurs, Grant thought to himself. 150 years of research, excavation all around the world. They still knew almost nothing about what dinosaurs had really been like. We've got to go, said Ellie. We've got to get there by five. And that is the end of the chapter and where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep.